Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll mark the one-year anniversary of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We battled with the idea that we would succeed, but leveraging that into politics was vital. And it is what led to the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And the clear challenges that lie ahead. The pro-life movement has a staggering challenge before us. Including how sacred abortion has become for those who defend it. It is the high sacrament of the left. Plus, we'll look at the growing effort to protect women's sports. There's more than 100 bills that have been focused on protecting minors in health care, sports, bathrooms, education, and the public square that have been enacted since 2022. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start at the Supreme Court and the one-year anniversary of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. That decision was announced on June 24, 2022, just over a year ago. So, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the end of Roe as the law of the land, let's consider one line from that decision one year ago. Held, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overturned, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. Roe and Casey are overruled. Praise God. The L.A. Times called Marjorie Dannenfelser the woman who brought down Roe. The president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America was a guest on my program. After 50 years of uh, battling, maybe you and I didn't do the whole 50 years, but a lot of those years, (laughs) (laughs) we battled with the idea that we would succeed. Now, we battled like that. We acknowledged that maybe it wouldn't happen in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. But because we don't do any of this alone, we do it with an army of an organic pro-life movement that is strong and building, has been building for years. But leveraging that into politics was vital. And it is what led to the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What a beautiful example of what democracy unleashed can do. And that same fact is true now. Now democracy has been, is uh, unleashed. So it is allowed to flourish in this country and every legislature in the land, including the national legislature, the U.S. Congress. And what we've seen so far uh, is almost half the country enacting laws to protect children between conception and 12 weeks, most of them being at conception and heartbeat. So almost half the country, 24 states, Certainly a point of great victory yes. and a great point of joy. And then, and then also, in the same breath, um, associated with about 60,000 boys and girls who are actually saved, not theoretically saved, their mothers are now receiving the care that they deserve that actually addresses the root causes of why they ended up at that clinic door in the first place, why they were tempted to go there, why they thought breaking the bond between mother and child by eliminating their child uh, would somehow fix the problems that they were facing. Now she's getting holistic, comprehensive, beautiful, loving care offered to her instead of aborting the life of her child. On the federal level, everyone looking at the current climate 
could say, oh, my gosh, that's impossible. There's no way you could ever enact some minimum standard getting us in line with Europe. You know, uh, they're at they're 47 out of 50 of those countries have a limit abortion before 15 weeks. Most of those at 12. You know, that could never happen. And we're just too divided. There's no way that could happen. Look at look at Capitol Hill. They can't get anything done. I say to impossible, look at what just happened. Look at the overturn of Roe versus That's Wade. Right. And then states like Oregon and California, Illinois, New York, will you will be working for change. We know that is true. That's how politics works. And, and you've got the same tools in Oregon that we have nationally. But if we have that federal minimum standard, which we must, it at least provides that minimum standard for a state. A state cannot go beyond what is established on the federal level, whether it's 15 weeks or heartbeat or, or whatever. So to me, those seem like the benefits, what's been beautiful that's happened, and some of the challenges. And, of course, just to add another challenge, I'm sure you know, is that all of the beautiful protections that have been passed, along with incredible legislation to serve mothers, um, the left and the abortion lobby, the Democrats are going in to start ballot initiatives to in, inject abortion into red state constitutions to undo all those beautiful protections. So game on. And uh, it is not a game. It is actually unleashing of all sorts of demons on the other side. But it is definitely the fruit, though, of putting a lid on democracy for 50 years. Now we finally have the tools. Yeah, and absolutely. it's time to get to work. This victory was won, but at a great cost. The rise in violence against pregnancy resource centers and pro-life uh, ministries and organizations increased across the country as well. And unsurprisingly, under the current administration, there hasn't seemed to be an appropriate response to the crimes that have been committed against the pro-life community. No, quite the opposite. The using of the FBI to raid a Catholic father's home armed with guns and a huge family terrified. I mean, all he's doing is praying in front of abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. Yes. And on the on Capitol Hill, there was a vote not long ago on the House side to which it was a resolution to condemn the violence against pregnancy centers, against um, churches, against pro-life leaders across the country. It was passed, but on a complete party line vote, Democrats voted against condemning the violence. And the and the president is using the FBI to go after good people who are uh, who are exercising their First Amendment rights. So it is there's an elderly man in Baltimore who was bludgeoned for praying outside a Planned Parenthood clinic. The list is yes. goes on and on and on. They are angry, and they are moneyed, uh, and they are spun up. But we have the truth, and we have we have a galvanized young new pro life movement. And so there is reason for great hope in the, in the face of such terrible violence. The court affirmed what those who fought for the dignity, value, and humanity of the unborn knew all along. There was never a right to abortion in the Constitution. But it took a very long time, 50 years, for us to get to this point. Here's Albert Moeller from his Briefing podcast. Even as the case known as Dobbs was working its way from Mississippi to the Supreme Court of the United States, there was great anticipation. There basically was on both sides of the case. By the time you get to the Supreme Court last year, both sides understood this was going to be a definitive moment in terms of abortion in America. By that time, the oral arguments before the court had made clear there was really no way for the court to avoid the issue. The issue was this. Is there in the text of the U.S. Constitution any right for a woman to obtain an abortion? 
The answer to that is plainly, obviously, no. That was the basic argument of the majority on the court, and that included, of course, the one who wrote the majority opinion, Justice Samuel Alito. But over the course of the last year, we have seen a massive reshuffling of the deck when it comes to the issue of abortion in the United States in political and cultural terms, not in moral terms. The issue of abortion remains in moral terms where it has always been. Christians understand that what is at stake is the fact that every single human life is an individual made in God's image, and we have no right to compromise that life or deny protection to that life from the moment of fertilization until natural death, period. What we discovered on the other side of the Dobbs decision is that America is even more conflicted on this issue than we thought. Now, I want to make reference to the front page of yesterday's edition of the New York Times, simply because what appears there is really important. What appeared there yesterday was a front page article with the headline, Abortion Views Shifted in Polls After Roe's End. Kate Zernike is the reporter in this case. Zernike begins her article going back a year, saying, quote, for decades, Americans had settled around an uneasy truce on abortion. Even if most people weren't happy with the status quo, public opinion about the legality and morality of abortion remained relatively static. But, she said, the Supreme Court's decision last summer overturning Roe v. Wade set off a seismic change in one swoop, striking down a federal right to abortion that had existed for 50 years, long enough that women of reproductive age had never lived in a world without it. She continued, quote, as the decision triggered state bans and animated voters in the midterms, it shook complacency and forced many people to reconsider their positions, end quote. But now, she says, the ground has shifted, quote, for the first time, a majority of Americans say abortion is morally acceptable. That's in quotation marks. Abortion is morally acceptable. Most now believe abortion laws are too strict. They are significantly more likely to identify in the language of polls as pro-choice over pro-life for the first time in two decades, end quote. Zernike went on to argue that the surveys indicate that Americans are more likely to vote on the basis of a candidate's position on abortion than at any previous time in American history. Now, let's just understand what the Dobbs decision did. The Dobbs decision struck down Roe v. Wade, which means the federal government now has no operating authority mandating that all states legalize abortion. The question has been, at this point, mostly returned to the states. And the states have responded differently. 14 states out of the 50. So you do the math. 14 out of 50 have basically outlawed abortion. And another set of states, a significant number of states that are rather geographically predictable, although not entirely so, they have put down significant restrictions on abortion. Here's something else we've learned. The pro-life movement has a staggering challenge before us. This is exactly what we should have expected. So a year after Dobbs, a year after the reversal of Roe v. Wade, what we need to understand is that we are pretty much where it should have been predicted we would be. In this sense, if you have a political movement on a moral issue, it is far easier to campaign against the status quo than to defend it, nor to move it in a direction of greater restriction. That's just a political reality, and we should have seen it coming. But then again, all of the energies were put for a half century into reversing Roe v. Wade. And having won that victory, we should expect that the pro-life movement is going to have to work even harder, 
even if it requires us to work harder for the next half century in order to seek to extend protections to the unborn. That raises a host of issues, including federal legislation, and that's where you have the Democratic Party now pushing, they'll often say, to put Roe back in place, but actually President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have been very clear they don't want to put Roe back. They want a federal right to abortion with virtually no restrictions whatsoever. I want to point out something else. I looked through an enormous set of mainstream publications, news agencies, newspapers, and others. Not one of them made any reference in a headline, in a cut line, or in any major editorial emphasis about the lives of the unborn saved. That's just invisible in terms of the mainstream media. It's all about, according to the mainstream media, the loss of a right to abortion that we need to recognize was simply invented, but it is the high sacrament of the left. And the culture of death is baring its teeth a year after Dobbs. We should have expected it. We're going to have to fight back. Coming up, protecting women's sports. There's more than 100 bills that have been focused on protecting minors in healthcare, sports, bathrooms, education. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. During my decade-long involvement in women's track and field and throughout my 30-plus years career in media, it's been universally understood that women's sports were, well, women's sports. We all understood precisely what we were talking about. Well, that is until now. President Biden, in his proclamation on Pride Month, boasted of his administration's, quote, proposed new rules to protect LGBTQIA+. Americans from discrimination in healthcare, at school, and in sports. We have always known that the U.S. women's soccer team was a team composed of biological women, right? Well, now that we've seen that line crossed and we're pressured to deny ontology, deny biological reality, the states are pushing back. Matt Staver of the Liberty Council joined Don Crow on WAVA in the nation's capital. Now, I understand from what you've uh, filed in an article uh, on your own website uh, at LibertyCouncil.com that lawmakers across almost all of the 50 states are trying to push back on this. Can you talk to us about what's happening in that regard? Yeah, there's 49 states, and there's one state that hasn't done anything. And you might guess that state is Delaware, the home of Joe Biden. But according to the legislation tracking data, there's more than 100 bills that have been focused on protecting minors in health care, sports, bathrooms, education, and the public square that have been enacted since 2022, while 373 bills remain in the legislative process. And Biden's proclamation is completely contrary to what's happening around our country. According to our own research, there's 30 states that have either enacted or are considering bills giving greater parental control over sexual education materials in public schools. 
There's at least 20 states that have banned biological males from competing on female sports teams, and at least 18 states that now prohibit puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and mutilating surgeries for children. In addition, there's 10 states that have passed protections for minors in public school restrooms and other public restrooms. And seven states either require parental notification when students change or want to use different pronouns or do not compel the use of pronouns that do not align with their child's biological sex. Currently, there's North Dakota that's followed by Montana, Tennessee, and Florida that are leading the way, frankly, with a combined total of 33 enacted laws protecting children from gender ideology. And conversely, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Delaware is the only state without any pending legislation to protect children. Why are we not surprised? In light of that uh, amazing response, what kind of teeth are being put into some of these laws? In other words, uh, is there going to be a real severe price to pay for those who choose to ignore state actions on these parts? Absolutely. And in fact, if you look at Idaho's law as an example, the Vulnerable Child Protection Act, it goes as far as making it a felony for anyone who knowingly authorized or provides so-called gender-affirming health care to youth under the age of 18. The Women's Bill of Rights in Kansas legally defines male and female based on a person's reproductive anatomy at birth, and several states have adopted the Save Women's Sports Act, protecting women and girls in sports from gender-confused males. We're seeing some significant penalties, like, for example, in Florida, which bans puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and mutilating surgeries on minors that anyone who violates that could be fined and any medical practitioner could lose his or her medical license. Florida also requires that any such treatment intervention for adults must be accompanied by informed consent. Amazing. They have to actually inform these people about what this procedure is about. And they have to also follow the patient so that if there's any complications, they don't just dump them off and go on to the next uh, profit, you know, income-making individual. So as a result of that, many of these gender so-called clinics in Florida are closing because all of the money is drying up because they cannot profit off of these children anymore. And... As a result, also, some of these more adult-oriented kind of places that give that same kind of medical intervention are shutting down as well because the profit centers are drying up. You know, there has been already a huge burgeoning of the introduction of these kinds of surgical interventions. So far, it looks like it's a $1.9 billion industry, and it's soon to reach $3 billion dollars. What we're also finding is statistical research and also information coming from some of these clinics is that there's a significant part of these, five times more than the general public, you'll see people that have autism or Asperger's that are being misdiagnosed as, quote, transgendered. Then they're given puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and pushed down the surgical path to mutilate their bodies when in fact what they need to have is proper diagnosis and proper medical treatment. And this is happening on a broad scale. There's some significant studies that have recently come out on this issue. It is a frightening and very chilling situation about how our children are being abused, and it's with the complicity of the medical and some of the counseling communities. And yet you mentioned toward the end of this column 
basically that the president in his proclamation promised that he, these are my words, he'll weaponize the Department of Justice and other agencies to fight these laws. In other words, put the full weight of the government behind defeating these very state laws. How successful do you think that defense is going to be on their part? You know, Biden is an evil person, frankly, to do this because uh, he is harming children. I think he will certainly do what he said in terms of trying to direct the Department of Justice and other agencies in any way they can. I don't think they're ultimately going to be successful. They may have a few temporary successes here or there. But frankly, at the end of the day, I think there is an overwhelming backlash of just common sense people of all different political and ideological spectrums that say this This is just nonsense to really give kids puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and mutilating surgeries that are going to permanently alter their bodies and sterilize them. Biden, on the other hand, is pushing towards that goal. I mean, what he is doing with these kinds of statements, he's fueling injury. You know, he ought to invite and have a conversation with people like Chloe, uh, who you know, at age 16, uh, she was told by the counselor and the mother was told, If you don't go down this road, you will not have your daughter. Well, you know what? Chloe was suffering from other things that were never treated. So Chloe got on the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and she had a mastectomy by the time she was 18. Mm. Now that she's 18, she and many like her regret it, and they're out there talking about these issues. Frankly, there's going to be, and there are already starting to occur, lawsuits against doctors, counselors, and these pharmaceutical companies for these damaging efforts to literally neuter these kids. Studies affirm medical mutilation is mentally harmful. Not only is there the irreversible physical damage, but talk a bit more about what's being discovered in terms of the profound psychological and mental impact of this. Yeah, there's recent published medical studies and numerous scientific confirmations of this, that mutilating gender surgeries fail to improve the overall lives of people struggling with gender dysphoria or gender confusion. And in fact, it actually worsens their mental health in most people by increasing feelings of loneliness Mm. and increased suicide. Peer-reviewed studies actually show that mutilating surgeries Uh, leave as high as 83% of the people feeling lonelier and almost 50% dissatisfied with their lives Mm. after surgery. Another 14% increase in suicide rates for people who've already gone through these mutilating procedures. And so the studies are coming in one after another showing that this medical mutilation is mentally harmful. Coming up, corporate America succumbs to pressure groups from the left. They're trying to co-opt these businesses use their brand, their resources to advance their political agenda. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. One of the factors fueling this fast-moving effort to transform the nation is the dramatic shift in corporate America. Corporations have now become activists. 
ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, has created a tool for us to measure whether or not a given corporation respects the diverse viewpoints of their customers, employees, and other stakeholders. They call it the Viewpoint Diversity Score. Jeremy Tedesco of ADF was a guest of Jerry Boyer on his Meeting of the Minds podcast. These companies, um, they have this goalpost that keeps moving, right? And so their human rights campaign uh, scores, they have to do more and more each year to keep their 100%. And pretty soon, Bud Light is uh, committing brand suicide, um, uh, something that would never have been asked of them five years before. And so the goalpost keeps moving. And I suppose it's because left-wing ideology isn't a position, it's a vector. There's never enough. It's insatiable. There's never enough. So someone can get a 100% score on your index and do the same things next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, and keep their 100% score on your index. That's right. That's right. And, and also, I think most importantly, they're not going to be partisans in the political and cultural issues of the day. We're not, like, unlike HRC and, and you know, so much of the environmental activism and, and other things on the left, they're trying to co-opt these businesses to use their brand, their resources, their, their internal policies, you know, the whole gamut to advance their political agenda. These outsiders' political agenda, outsiders who don't really have the business's you know, best interests at heart, where we're just saying you need to treat people with equal dignity and respect, regardless of their religious and political views. It's so interesting you bring up Bud Light because not only did they probably push so deep into the LGBT you know, agenda on their marketing because of the Corporate Equality Index, but then HRC, who runs that index, comes out and says, you're going to lose your 100% on our index because we didn't think you were properly supportive after you had this massive brand suicide, as you called it, scenario play out over the last few months. So, you know, they weren't satisfied with any of it. And now they're going to ratchet down their score because they weren't properly supportive after they got completely wiped out by their customer base. Yeah. And that, I think, really points out the, the thing that you're you're talking about, which is that th this has nothing to do with being good for business. I know I've seen hundreds and hundreds, thousands of these proposals, um, and they always talk about risk management, reputational risk, um, et cetera. Um, but in fact, it's perfectly obvious that they don't mind destroying value for the companies. Um, these index providers, like Human Rights Campaign, they're not, they're not investors. They don't have a stake. They don't have skin in the game. Frequently, the activist groups buy just enough shares to put a proposal on the ballot. So they're not really you know, people with skin in the game. These are 75, 25 issues often in American society. And pushing someone to side with the 25 against the 75 is not about business risk management, except they kind of make it about business risk management because essentially they offer proposals which will protect you from the threat, a threat which they create. <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit like nice business you have there, shame something were to happen to it, as opposed to, I think, with genuine diversity, if everyone feels comfortable coming to work and doing their best there, that is inherently good for business, even if conservatives and normies and everybody, if, even if nobody, you know, creates a pushback or a backlash, it's still good policy. Whereas for the left, they only make it good policy by 
using intimidation if you don't kowtow to them. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's unfortunately been the trajectory that American business has been on for the last decade plus. And in large measure, I think we have to be honest on the right because it was an uncontested battle. The left really took over shareholder engagement, the use of these kinds of tools, rating systems and rankings and indexes to push corporations further and further left. And while, yeah, there's plenty of willing corporations, uh, or at least willing people in leadership in some of these corporations to go down that path, it's where they want to go anyways. I think there's also a lot of very good business leaders inside these corporations who are starting to understand that the consequences that they thought probably they would pay by going continually down this one-sided political path are finally coming to fruition. See Disney, see Bud Light, um, see other examples. And so what the Viewpoint Diversity Index really does is point out that there's a different path available for these corporations, a path that's, that's attractive, a path that's good for everybody inside their organization and outside their organization. And that is one where they respect the diverse beliefs represented amongst all their core constituents. You can get Jerry's Meeting of Minds podcast at SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Coming up... The armor of God is really his gift to us. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For those of us who have been Christians for any length of time, we'll recognize those words from Paul in Ephesians 6. The full armor of God has been a tangible help for believers since the day that letter was first received by the church in Ephesus. J.D. Peabody has come to see that armor in a new and compelling way. He wrote about it in Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. And we talked about it on my program. I appreciate so much that you have shared elements of your story. I think it really helps those who struggle recognize that this is more common than we might imagine. And the fact that you serve in a pastoral role I think really helps as well that you've been vulnerable in acknowledging your personal challenge and where you found help. So first of all, I'd want to commend you for the book uh, and for the sermon series that I guess this book uh, came out of. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I had never really seen the armor of God through the lens of anxiety before, but mm-hmm. Once it was in the midst of my own struggle, it just kind of opened up in a whole new way for me, and I was so grateful. Well, you write about your struggles with anxiety. Talk a bit about when you first noticed this challenge and how that played out in your life. Yeah, you know, for most of my life, I I hate to admit that I was really largely out of touch with my emotions, and maybe that's a, a typically male fact, and yet our brains and our bodies are feeling it even if we 
aren't aware of what's going on. And eventually they're going to get our attention. And sometimes that comes out sideways. And for me, it came in the form of what I what I refer to as kind of my emotional, mental meltdown, where all of a sudden I just found myself being bombarded with these intrusive, unwanted thoughts that it just felt like my mind was spinning out of control. I told people it felt like my brain broke and I didn't know what was happening. It was it was frightening to me and it was alarming. And I I went on a walk with a friend of mine and uh, as we're walking along, I'm just I'm just crying, which was also very uncharacteristic of me. And I'm just pouring out my heart and I get to the end of my long tirade here and I say to him, I'm not an anxious person. And he looked at me and he laughed and it was not the reaction I had been going for, <laughs> but it really caught me up short and it made me realize uh, it was like he was saying, have you ever even really looked at yourself? Mm. And I, it caused me to really take stock and begin to see myself differently and a step back. And, and that kind of really led me on a journey that's led right up to today of, of kind of beginning to see, oh, yeah, there's a lot more going on under the surface than I realized. Yeah, I think that's probably true for most of us. The scripture says, be anxious for nothing. And it wouldn't have uh, merited its own verse, if you will, if it wasn't really common among us that we tend toward anxiety, some more than others. So is what you're telling me it's possible to be in a position of leadership, to be a worship leader, a pastor, a women's ministry leader, a parent, and still struggle somewhat in these areas and be a Christ follower? Absolutely. And I think I think that's actually part of the struggle for Christians in particular is because of verses like that. We read those and we go, okay, well, the the Bible says, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't be afraid. And I'm feeling these feelings. And so then we feel guilty for having these feelings and we compound our suffering by suddenly now we're a bad Christian because we're experiencing this. And so then that leads us to either trying to pretend and perform for people to say, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, or or we push it down and we bear all this guilt, when I think at least I have kind of come to a place of learning to read those verses a little differently and see in them not so much reprimand as reassurance. And so it is our Father saying to us, you don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid uh, because I've I've taken care of these causes that are alarming you. And so uh, to be able to receive it less as a scolding and more as a comfort. Absolutely. You say that this is a book about protection and vulnerability, about defensiveness and pain and avoidance. Uh, tell us how this book is about all of those things in the context, not only of exposing those areas where we are vulnerable, but how the armor of God is, in fact, designed for the anxious mind. Well, I think, like I was saying before, if we are feeling that not only are we experiencing all this anxiety, which for me felt like something that it it wasn't like I could just choose to turn it off. It It felt beyond my control. But when it feels like this is something that you shouldn't be feeling, then you're going to be avoiding that. You're going to be trying to pretend it doesn't exist or push it down. And so you begin to rely on your own self-defensive protection kind of mode to put shields up around yourself instead of just bringing it to God, because grace is for all these things that we can't fix ourselves. That's why Jesus came, uh, because we couldn't fix the problem of sin and all the brokenness that is attached to that. And so 
to instead go to him and realize that the armor of God is really his gift to us. You know, I grew up in a Christian home where I heard about the armor of God all the time growing up, and really it felt like the the emphasis was typically placed on the picking up and putting on the armor. Mm -hmm. And so there was so much stress on what you're doing with the armor that it, it could become one more thing to get right for God, rather than to say, oh, God is telling me I have done this on your behalf, and this is about uh, your protection. Because if I'm, if all my security is in the way that I'm picking it up, then that's not really God's protection for me. That's me protecting myself. And so, learning to view the armor of God in a whole different way and see uh, that it's really all about Jesus and His grace for us, and to receive it has been a big journey. We often live with the illusion that a life of trusting God equals fewer problems. I'm not sure where that concept comes from, but is there a danger in expecting that I'm a follower of Christ and therefore uh, it's pretty smooth sailing from here on out? Yeah, I think that is just such a natural uh, way that our minds work is we we think that uh, if if God is asking us to live a certain way, that that's going to pay off in, you know, at least if there's not going to be uh, fewer problems for us, that maybe the duration won't be as long or it won't be quite as bad of suffering. And that's that's just not the case. I think uh, God's God's armor for us is is not to take away the battles, but it's to protect us through the battles. And so we wouldn't need the armor if there weren't uh, a mm-hmm. struggle. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think um, it's really easy to assume that, though. Coming up. The only thing that is going to protect me and make me okay is what Jesus did on the cross. More on Perfectly Suited when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Tuning into the baseball game, monitoring the incoming storm, catching your favorite talk show. These are just a few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. And did you know AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times? It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we've been called to take up the armor of God. Quoting from Ephesians 6, we should be taking up the shield of faith and take the armor of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These should be real world practical helps fashioned for us by God himself. Let's pick up on my conversation with J.D. Peabody on his book, Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Talk a bit about how the armor of God can address this struggle with an anxious mind. Yeah, I think especially for me, uh, I think when I uh, I was diagnosed in the process of all this anxiety, eventually got to a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think part of the compulsion part of it for me has been to constantly scrape uh, for my own motives. And I equate it to this sort of spiritual version of compulsive hand washing, always trying to get clean and feeling like you can never quite get there. And this constantly evaluating myself and and being really judgmental of myself. And I think as I can come to that acceptance of the fact that 
I'm never going to be able to get myself clean, then I can see that the armor of God, when he talks about the the shield of faith, it's it's putting faith in what Christ has already done for me and saying the only thing that is going to protect me and make me okay is what Jesus did on the cross. And that becomes then my safety and my shield. And when I am hiding behind that, it's like uh, Scripture says that he, he shelters us under his wings. And so I learned to rely on his doing that for me rather than, than my own best efforts to get clean on my own. You write about the shield of faith. You write about having your feet shod, about the breastplate of righteousness. Um, All of these tools can help us to deal with an anxious mind. How has that worked for you? You know, I think the piece of the armor that I've developed the most affection for is the helmet of salvation because of everything that was happening inside my brain. And uh, I realized... uh, I got this picture of a patient in the hospital who has just undergone some sort of brain surgery or is recovering from a brain injury, and the doctors will put a a helmet on them to protect them. And I realized that the, the helmet of salvation is to cover the wounds inside my head as well as the attacks from the outside. Uh, that that was a great comfort to me and and to realize that I didn't need God to take the anxiety away. What I needed was to be freed from the power of that anxiety, uh, to, to allow it to be there and for God to use it and, and to instead of say, God, take it away, to instead say, you know, be glorified in this, use it. So I, I feel like that's what he's continuing to teach me. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producer David Pushan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work.